I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Hello and welcome to Who Am I This Time? with me, David Morrissey. Each episode, I'm talking to performers from film, television and theatre about one significant role in their career. It might not always be the role they're most famous for, but in each one, I'll be trying to find out about the preparation, the excitement and the sense of nostalgia that goes with any key role in an actor's lifetime. Don Warrington has an extensive list of credits across film, television and theatre, including Death in Paradise, Cat's Eyes and Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, as well as starring roles at the National Theatre, the RSC and at Manchester's Royal Exchange. But one of his first roles was playing Philip Smith in the comedy series Rising Damp, alongside Leonard Rossiter, Richard Beckinsale and Francis Delatour. I caught up with him earlier this year to talk about that life-changing experience. Hi, thanks for joining me. And my guest today is the wonderful Don Warrington, who we've seen on our screens for many years in Holby City and things like Death in Paradise. But today we're going to start with uh, his character of Philip Smith from the uh, sitcom Rising Damp, which was on our screens in seven, between 74 and 78, I think. But Don, isn't it true that it, it started as a play, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. It started as a play called Banana Box, um, written by Eric Chappell, who also wrote the series. Uh, it was due to going to the West End, which it did. Uh, it didn't live very long in the West End. And I think the then head of Yorkshire television saw it and thought it would make a comedy series. And was the play was the play very much similar set in the, the boarding house with Rigsby? Yeah, and- I mean, there were changes made to the play because... I suppose in 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 the play, the, the main character was my character, Philip Smith. But for the purposes of of um, the comedy series, I think it had to be um, skewed more towards um, um, the Rigsby character, mm. just in terms of the um, uh, as a, as a, as a focus for the piece. The the, the central figure had to be. Um, the landlord, I think. How did it come about, first of all? Was it your first job from drama school? You went to drama centre, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, I did. It was it was my first job. You know, like these things happen from time to time. I went along for an audition for a play because a friend of mine told me that they were looking for, um, uh, as, as it was put in those days, a young black actor to play this African prince. And uh, she thought, well, I should try. I told my agent who sent me up, and they 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 offered me the part. Uh, that, was it as simple as that? You went in, and they was there were there many other rivals for the role. 
I've no idea. I've no idea at all. I, in fact, I mean, if the, the, the play had been tried out before in um, in Leicester, I think, but I was still at drama school, so I knew nothing about that. You know, when you're just out of drama school, you think, well, I'll go along and see what happens. <laughs> um, which is what I did. I didn't know what it would turn into or anything like that. I just went in, did it, and it came my way, which was, um, um, you know, in retrospect, good for me, I guess. But, you know, we never know what what road we're going to take until we're on the road, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. if that hadn't happened, my, my career might have been something entirely different. And how soon from it being in the West End to it being picked up by Yorkshire? It was about a year, I oh, think. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't long at all. Um, because, again, in those days, it was simpler. Mm-hmm. If somebody said, I want to do it, his boss said, okay, do it. And that was that. So we did it. You know, and they didn't have committees and things like that. Yeah. Making those... decisions. Yeah, it just had to go to one person, really. Didn't yeah. it? And yeah. what about the different? Had you done any television then at that time? Was it no, was, that must have no. been? So did you have to? Did you do that at drama school at all? Or did you just no, have to learn? No, that we, no, no, no. We'd never done anything like that. I have to say that I'm grateful to Len Rossiter, really, because he he kind of taught me. He kind of said, you know, if you do it like that. Um, it won't work. If you do it like this, it will work. And he was right mm-hmm. 99.9% of the time. And I, I looked upon him as a sort of a teacher, really. And what sort um, of things was he, was that just simply about how to use the camera or to take it? Was, it was that, but it was also comedy. Mm-hmm. What was comedy, what you played, if you wanted it to be funny. I mean, he would actually demonstrate. He would show me. Um, and then, you know, I was just a boy and I thought, well, my best bet here is to listen. Mm-hmm. So I did. And I could see, you know, I could see I'd seen him in the theater and I could see he was he was pretty brilliant. So it seemed to me the sensible thing to do was to watch, mm-hmm. which I did. I watched him and I took from him what I could. And it was but also it was a very nice cast. They realized that I was very young, and all of them, um, Francis Delatour, Richard Beckinsale, they all, they all kind of, it, it, they all looked after me, really. Mm-hmm. And what about just how it was, would you go into the rehearsal room and would you rehearse for, say, I don't know how long, well, and then put it on days, the set? Well, it was, it was um, yeah, we would rehearse in the rehearsal room for four days. On the fifth day, we'd go up to... Uh, Yorkshire Television, and uh, we'd have a, a technical rehearsal, and then we'd shoot it um, the following day. Uh, it, so you do that half hour in one day. Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and did you do it in front of a live audience? We did. We did indeed. So, in a sense, to me, it was like being in the theatre. Mm-hmm. That's what one, you know, you would go in front of a live audience. So we did. The only difference was there were there were cameras there, and and if um, if you cocked up, you did it again. Really, you tried not to because there was an audience. But there's also a difference, isn't there, in the sense that in a in a theatre, one has to be slightly 
bigger than one has to be in front of a camera. Was that difficult for you to adjust or was Len looking after you there as well? You know, people say this, and to this day, I'm not, I don't quite know what that means. I think if you're true to what you're doing, then that's all that's required. I think what the camera picks up is artifice. Yes. Which which is, you know, some people do it like that's fine. But I think if if you're true, then it reads. And I don't think it's ever too big. I think if we look at some of the greatest actors, film actors, to my mind, they're huge. You know, if you look at Marlon Brando, he's yeah, huge. Yeah. Jack Nicholson, he's huge. Yeah. Al Pacino is in another world altogether. Yeah. But, you know, Robert De Niro, these guys, they they are true. Mm. And I think that's what the camera reads. So uh, to come back to the question, I didn't really um, pay much attention to cameras in that sense. I just did it and made it as real and as true as I could and hope for the best. I mean, I have to say of all the characters, Philip is the one that uh, is, for me, I think, most natural. I mean, Leonard Roster, you know, is is undoubtedly true, but he's it's a big performance. Yeah, yeah. And but Philip has this real, I mean, he's the butt of many racist jokes, you know, looking yeah. back at it now. Yeah. Yeah. But he has this real dignity, and they sort he's aspirational. They all sort of want to be him, don't they? Yeah. All, in, I mean, in the case of Miss Jones wants to be with him, but yeah. you know, they they it does have this aspirational feel to him, doesn't it? Yes, I think so. And I think that's that's down to Eric Chappell. Mm-hmm. Um, he he kind of the genesis of this is that that it came from Eric who who wrote it, working with a guy who was really racist, and he got sick of it. So he decided to write something that would turn that on its head. You know, all all the cliches about black people and all the rest of it. He just I mean, he, he basically wrote a black man. You know. A, a white man in a, in a black man's skin. Mm. That's basically what he did. And I think because of that that contradiction as it stood then, you know, he became this figure, this, this, this... He was more English than the English. Mm. He was more royal than the royals. He was... He was this, to some extent, um, a perfect human being. And I think that was Eric's attempt... At, at dealing with the racism he f- he found around him, I mean, one has to say that the aspiration was admirable, mm-hmm. really. Even if at times you can question how it was done, um, there was a kind of naivety to it, which I don't think we would allow nowadays. No. But in the end, I suppose the point is that Philip always managed to win. But there's a wonderful line in it, which I thought was very modern and very sort of poignant, where um, Richard Beckinsale's characters, you say, do you mind me being here? And he says, oh, no, 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 no this will be, it'll be a good experience. And you just look at him and you go, I'm not an experience. And it's yeah. so brilliant. And it's like really, you know, he's he really brings this sort of intelligence and and sense of place to to the the the, the set and the, and the boarding house. It's it's brilliant. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, Eric worked very hard and his intentions were very, very good. And did he work um, with you? Were you part of that as a... a no, was he... no not, not really. I would turn up on the Sunday afternoon at, at the read-through and we'd read it. Eric would listen. He would go away and come back with, with amendments if he felt it needed it. You know, there was never there was never a conversation about about um, Philip as such. Um, I think he took from what we did on the floor and he changed it accordingly. Really, yeah. um, um, but his intention was to combat the stupidity um, of racism, and he he exposed it in term, terms of who the people were. If, if 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 you see what I mean, yeah, you know, definitely. By by demonstrating how how stupid Rigsby was, this 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 guy, you know, was just he was an idiot. He was an idiot. He was he was he had no sense of himself whatsoever. No, he, also, Rigsby is that person who's you know he's he's a post-war, so he's he's a Tory with no money. He's sort yeah. of you know he's being yeah. kicked around yeah. by the system, but he yeah. he's but also. He yeah. He doesn't care. Anybody posh can do anything to him because he believes yeah. they're, they're yeah. right. I mean, yeah. all of that is mixed in. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I think Eric caught the society at the time in a way um, that that reverence for um, the upper classes, that feeling that somehow they were inherently superior. Well, it's it was not a million there. miles away from where we are now. <laughs> No. Well, there are similarities. There are there are a lot of it's it's it's, it's scary, it's yeah. scary in that way. I mean, watching it again, I was, you know, particularly there's one episode where Rigsby is campaigning for the Tory Party, and you and Richard are campaigning for uh, the Labour Party, and uh, it's sort of very, you know, the guy turns up who's the Tory councillor, and you think, God, you'd, you'd vote for him today. That that is the time. No, he would be in power. It was yeah. so so strangely well, sort of modern. Yeah. But where did you find Philip? Did you have to? Was he very tangible to you when you were doing the the play? And and the, was he somebody that you just went, yes, I know this person a hundred percent? Or did you have to sort of put him together in some way as a character? Well, I think, I think, I think as a, a young actor, I had to put him together. I I, I think I was fortunate in having a training that gave you tools to create a character. And I think I used those as well as I could at the time. Mm -hmm. And that's where Philip came from, really applying that method of work to what was on the page. And out of that came, came this, this figure. But the, the key to Philip was, I think, he was a man with a secret. I think once I discovered that, I could begin to work him, mm. really. I often think that with characters, what are they hiding? What would they yeah. be so either ashamed or sort of frightened that people yeah. discover about them? And then that, whether that's in the script or not, it gives me yeah. uh, some sort of boundaries yeah. to work amongst. It's yeah. really good. I mean, the show was a huge success. I mean, how did that change your life? I mean, it must have changed your life massively. Well, there was, well, I had no life to change in that sense. You know, I had no, I just, I, I just arrived. So, and that was it. Um, it's hard to know really how it changed my life. It's because 
although it was very popular and it made me into a sort of um, recognizable figure, the fact was it also led to people thinking that was all I could do. Mm-hmm. You know, that was so, so it, it excluded me from certain things, but I guess that's the nature of the business. I guess the way people identify you can work in, 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 in um, good ways and bad ways. I yeah, guess it, it's the blessing you know? and the curse, isn't it? Really? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. but just simply in your, just walking down the street, you know, just in your personal life with your family, stuff like that. Yeah. Being in a hit show, yes. did you have to adjust your behavior in any way? How did that arrive at you? Well, I guess, you know, I remember when it was the first night it was on, I went up, I was living in Hampstead at the time, and there was a greengrocer on on um, on the main street in Hampstead. And I'd been going in there um, 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 uh, for weeks, I walked in on this particular day and the person who owned the shop took me from the queue and said, how can I serve you? <laughs> that, that seemed to me to be fame that wow. I, I didn't have to stand in the queue that I got. I mean, and that's, that's, it wasn't, you know, that was, that stuff happened, but, but they happened because I, I happened to be a young man looking the way I did, uh, and there were opportunities which I was far too shy to take on. Right. I, you know, and also there's an element to this which I think we forget, which is that fame was not the thing I wanted. Mm-hmm. It was at that at that at that age at that time, fame was not a great thing. Mm. It became fantastic later because it meant a lot of things. In those days, it really was double-edged because, in a way, there was a sort of snobbish view of fame and people kind of looked down on it. And to some extent, I suspect I did too, that I didn't want it. Mm. I wanted to be private. I wanted to get on with my life. I wanted to do things that I saw then as being uh, meaningful. Fame in the theatre or fame in films is a completely different thing. Completely, completely. But you still, because you're not taken out of the life that you're lived by that fame. Fame in the theatre, you can have your anonymity. Fame in films, it takes you out of your everyday life. Fame in this type of television, you still have to go to the greengrocers, don't you? I know, I know. And it makes you, it somehow, it, it, it meant that people felt that they had access to you Yes. In a way that in the theatre people didn't and don't, I think. Mm-hmm. I think there's a recognition. There's a distance because they sit there and you're up there. And I, the same thing works on film, I think. I think people go somewhere or they used to to watch what you're doing. Mm-hmm. The fact that we were going into people's homes gave them a kind of attitude which was very, very different. And given the drama school I'd gone to, it wasn't something that I particularly wanted, you know. And there was, you know, there was a fashion at the time that one wanted to be uh, moody and yeah. silent and, you know. Enigmatic. Sure, 
Yeah, I'm sure you know about but, but also your drama school, drama centers, it's for people who don't know, it's, it's sort of the famous sort of method school. Yeah. If, you, if you wanted yeah. to study method, then you'd yeah. go there. Yeah. And yeah. am I right in saying that the first time that the sort of acting itch came to you was watching on the waterfront? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. I, what was I, it yeah. about that film that sort of struck you? It was Brando. It's very simple. It was just watching this person um hold all this feeling you know there was a there was a there was something very beautiful about it you know you saw a human being and the colors were very very vivid yes and i thought i'd like to try and do that mm-hmm. that's that's where it came from Yes, it was very much part for me as well. In a very different way, I remember because I had a very odd relationship with my father, which was quite distant. And one night just before my bedtime, it came on the TV. And my dad said, oh, this is great. Come here. And he put his arm around me and we were sitting on the sofa together to watch it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this has never happened. And then my mum came in and said, what's this? And he said, it's on the waterfront. And my mum said, oh, we can't watch that. And she took me to bed. And I was so angry and upset by many things. A, I, I'd been denied something, but also this time with my father, which I never had. And when I eventually got to see it, the film carried so much weight for me personally. Yeah. Yeah. But also that, I mean, it's the Bernstein score. It's, the, you know, it's Johnny Friendly. It's the, all those yeah. stuff. Yeah. It's Steiger. Yeah. But it was a really big point to me about seeing a man, also seeing a man who's obviously very macho, crumble mm. and be upset yeah. and sort of cry. And I'd never seen that before. It was I know. amazing. But, but also it was very heroic. Yes. I remember Carl Malden yes. in it. You know, I remember the, the speech when he was standing in the hole. And throwing and, the bottles at him. You know, all that. As a boy, you look at it and you go, that is, that is that is living. I want to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, yeah, that's, that's, yeah. And so when you got to Drama Center, what was your plan? If it wasn't, you know, the television fame, or did you have a plan about where you would go in the first, like, five or ten years of your No, life? there was no plan because I knew nothing about the theater. I knew nothing about any, any of it. It was just, it was just something that, had taken hold of me and also you know there was a, there was something about escape mm. being an actor is an is about escape you escape as, as it seemed then you escape yourself really because you inhabit all these other lives mm-hmm. and that that was that was what i wanted to do because i thought that you know, I grew up in Newcastle, and I found it um, dull. But you were I'm brought. Not, you, you you went to Newcastle when you were about six or seven. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up in Newcastle, and again, I suppose I come back to this thing of of a secret. And I think that while I was growing up, I there was a part of me thinking, and this may be to do with the fact that I was born in Trinidad. And there was a part of me that while I was growing up, while I made friends, while I became a Geordie, that was outside it all. And I was looking for somewhere else to go. Mm -hmm. 
somewhere else which was, if you like, warm, hot, and not necessarily in terms of climate, but in terms of living. Mm. And acting seemed to me to be that thing, to contain all those elements of heat and cold and, you know. And do you mean community as well? Does that, does that include community as well? Well, I didn't know about actors. The first time I, I met actors was when I naively walked into the local theatre and said, I want to be an actor, can I have a job? You know, and they went, well, you can, you can sweep the stage, which was very nice of them. <laughs> um, so that's when I first met actors, and, and um, I liked them. I liked their... Uh, I liked... They were glamorous to me. Yeah. They were glamorous people. They were, they were full of, of, of magic and the way they talked to each other and the affection they showed each other, the openness they seemed to exhibit. That all seemed to me to be great. So that's, that was what I wanted. And what, what, what Drama Center gave me was an education in terms of what the life might be. But that, that was acquired over time. All I had when I went into that school was a dream. And what astonished me was the people who were there. These people, all, my, my contemporaries, all seemed to be so glamorous. They'd done so many things. Yes. I was just this, you know, little black boy from Newcastle. Mm-hmm. You know. We'll be back with more chat after this. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hi, you're listening to Who Am I This Time? With me, David Morrissey. Now, back to this week's episode. But they must have seen something in your... I presume you auditioned for drama. Yeah, yeah. So there must have been something in your presentation that they went, this 
this is they must have seen Don Warrington. They must have seen the talent that you have. And and it's so wonderful that you, you know, then they accept you and then you have to go into that environment of, of learning, yeah. which I yeah. found very difficult myself. It, it was extraordinary because they all seemed so advanced and sophisticated and knew about the world and struck poses that I just couldn't. Yeah. And I, you know, you just try to learn. You try what about to what about London at that time? What was that like for you? There's the there's the educational or you know yeah. the acting experience. What was London like for you when you came coming from Newcastle? Suddenly was, here you are in the city. It was fantastic. It was it was so exciting to me, and you know, luckily I had some friends who'd left Newcastle a few years before me, and they they were living in Notting Hill Gate, and you know. I've never told this story before, but um, they were older than me and they were at university, but they dropped out and they they formed a, a band. And I used to go round in Newcastle to their house just to kind of sniff the air around them. And when I came to London to drama school, I, they said, come and see us. So I did. And my friend at the time, his name was Ian. When I went round to see them, he had changed his name from Ian to Jane. And it was like, my God. You can do anything. Yeah, this is, whoa. <laughs> you know, but, they, but they, they looked after me. I mean, they looked after me in many ways, and maybe in some ways they shouldn't. But, <laughs> you know, I was young. It was an experience. It was, it was great. Yeah. You know, and they knew about me in a way that um, my colleagues at drama school didn't because they'd seen me. They'd seen this, you know, this little Geordie boy coming in, mm-hmm. being bright eyed and bushy tailed about who they were and what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, And then I saw these sophisticated young men living this extraordinary kind of bohemian life. Mm-hmm. You know, where they, you know, to the extent that they were willing to drop a personality and yeah. adopt another one. So so they in a way they became truly themselves. Yes. And all things were possible. That's the yeah. that, when I came to London, I thought I can be whoever I want here. Yeah. And yeah. you know, and that can change. Yeah. But how did it go down with your mom when you said that this was the profession you wanted to go into? Was how how difficult was that? For the people around you to accept, or were they very supportive? They were very, they just kind of looked at me and went, well, if that's what you want to do. Uh, They knew nothing about it, but they didn't object, which which is, I'm forever grateful. And I think they saw it. I remember the day the letter came saying that I got into Drama Center. I think they took it as proof that I had something. Mm. Uh, you know, and very quickly I was on their screens Yeah, and they could boast to their neighbors. And did you ever go home after Rising Down? Was it, did, oh, yeah. Did, yeah, so yeah. Neighbor, I, neighbors and friends, did they react to you differently? Yeah, yeah. people do. Yes. People <laughs> do. I mean, you know, you know, I, I yeah, I, I, I went home and my parents were so proud. Yes. They would like exhibit me. I was like a sort of monument, <laughs> you know. You'd sort of, you know. They'd say, "Let's go to the pub." Yeah. I thought, 
we don't go to the pub. We are but it this was time. a means of, you know, yeah. people seeing and them basking in that glory that here he was, you know, he's become something. And I think in those days, that that for a, a black family was great. Yeah. Really, it was great. I mean, you know, one can think about all the sadnesses around that, but in that moment, they they were glowing. It was something to be celebrated. Yeah. And in the four years that it was on Rising Damp, what how did that change? I mean, did did things like was there any question about were you renegotiating contracts? Was your agent looking for other work for you? Were you did oh, you yeah. feel that did you feel the curse of it whilst you were doing it? Well, again, this is this is how 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 times change. We were never happy doing it in terms of what it did. Right. What I mean by that is I wanted to go to pull away from it. I wanted to do what my contemporaries were doing, which was to go into rap mm -hmm. and play parts and learn. I didn't want the, the fame that came with it. As I've said earlier, I found it a little bit uh, distasteful. I, I, and it was, always a, it was always a conversation to persuade us to do it again, really. And because, because it was just the time. We, we just felt that fame was not even then. Mm. You know, he said, I can only do it for this amount of time. Um, uh, and we only did it for four years. Yeah, yeah. They wanted to go on. We didn't. You did movie as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, we did them. That was a couple of years later. Right. And by then, the reality of life was setting. And so the movie came along. You went, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. But in, in, in its heyday on television, we kind, of, we kind of thought, oh, we'll only do one more. And then it persuaded us. So altogether, we did four and, and, and we moved on. Right. And it was not, not a loss. Mm-hmm. But when you say you didn't enjoy it, you know, you didn't allow yourself to enjoy it in there, what would, what would you, Don, now say to the Don then? How, how is it possible to sort of be in that madness and enjoy it at the same time? Yes, it is. It is if, if that is how you define things. If, 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 if career is defined by fame and fortune, yeah, do it. Um, but it wasn't then, mm. and it, 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 I suppose to some, it's much more so now. I mean, if I were, if I were uh, 21 now and I got a series, I think I'd be very pleased. Yes. You know, whereas then it was, mm, yeah, it's okay. And I used to, you know, my contemporaries, I used to kind of just stand at the side of them a bit, thinking I should be, I should be learning my craft. I should be doing this. I should be doing not, not a comedy on TV. That's not, that's not what I spent, you know, three years of my life learning to do. We used to do Molière. We used to do uh, Racine. We used to do, do big stuff, mm -hmm. you know, um, the Spanish golden age. So I didn't, <laughs> you're stupid now, but I, you know, I didn't want to come out and do a sitcom. That was, you know, 
But now I think you can see that if you have a success like that on television, that you as the actor, you can use that to yeah. take yeah. it into somewhere else. I mean, you have Absolutely. done that. I mean, you know, you've played Leah, you've played Willie Loman, you've done All My Sons, you know, you've done great theatre. I mean, that's come come at you in the last like, 10 years, I think. I mean, yeah. it's how has that been for you? Do you feel in a, in a happier place being in that 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 those theater and those roles well yeah i mean you know i i it's funny it's funny because when you think about when i think about my career there are things i really love doing um and i love doing leah it was it was a terrifying thing and it was also what was good about it was that somebody asked me to do it yes <laughs> you know, a director and she and she she she's great. Um, she said to me, I'd, "I'd done. I was at the exchange, and I'd done um, all my sons, Arthur Miller. We did a black version of it with Talawa, mm -hmm. and Sarah Frankham, who was running the theatre at the time. She said, "Have a cup of tea with me." So we did, and she said, "How about Leah?" And I kind of I went, I didn't I, I didn't take her seriously. I thought this is what people say, but but she meant it. And it was it was it was wonderful for her to ask, and it was wonderful to do it. That was great, and you know the stuff I've done with her has been fantastic. All my sons again, an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. I think Joe Kelly is a great part. I mean, I think that whole idea of responsibility outside of yourself, and actually how it's contrary to the american dream and it's all yeah. it's never not relevant that play is it yeah yeah i mean it's it's you know it, it was and also with sarah frankham and i keep mentioning her name because i think she's great mm -hmm. um there was i had a champion somebody who saw something that i guess nobody else had seen she saw that i could do leah that is so wonderful. And we did it. And then she, she saw I could do uh, uh, Death of a Salesman. And we did it. And, and that, that was lovely. But, you know, there's stuff you do. Like I spent time at the National um, with Bill Bryden in that mm -hmm. company. And that was, again, wonderful. And I, I did a couple of plays at the National, which were just lovely to do. You know, and the thing about... What one realizes is, is what people remember of you is not necessarily what you choose. It is their choice. It is for them, you know, because I will. And it's quite hard to know what that difference is, why, why they choose that and not that. You know, I, I did a play at the National called Statement of Regret. Mm with um, Kwame um, and it was, I thought, an extraordinary piece of work um, and we did it. And because of its subject, people kept it at arm's length. What was its subject again? Just go through it for us. Well, it, it, it's about what people are trying to do. How, how you, he was, he was, presenting a world of black intellectuals 
people who thought. And at the time, I think that was quite a difficult concept for um, uh, this country to deal with, mm-hmm. that there might be a black think tank somewhere. And so it's, although the response wasn't in, wasn't a bad one, it somehow you felt it was slightly, it just made people step back slightly. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, maybe in five years time, 10, I don't, I don't know when people will maybe re-examine that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, what, what, what that writer was trying to do at the time that, you know, there were things like that that you did that, that stay in the heart because it, it, it meant something. It, it's, it's, it was the theater being used in ways that maybe it was dangerous. Maybe. I love that thing you said about the fact that what people remember you for is sort of their business and not yours. Yeah. There's also, and I've said this on the podcast in the past before, there's also an element of within your own performance, what an audience takes from it. There's sort of nothing to do with you either, isn't nothing it? So it's yeah. like, why am I doing this? What do I want to do with this? How do I want to interpret this role? How it lands has got nothing to do with me. No. That's that's your business. Yeah. That's a really freeing, creative place to get to. Because as a younger actor, I thought how it landed and how people walked out of the theatre, what they walked out with, was all my responsibility. Well, yeah. As soon as I realised that it had nothing to do with me, yeah. it was such a freeing, creative place. Yes, it is. I mean, it is because people come in with a history their history, and they see everything through that lens, Yeah, really. I mean, even critics, yeah. even people who are supposed to be able to, to go beyond that, they don't mm. in the main, in the main. Mm. They, 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 they read it through their, their, their lens, and the, that's their business as far as I'm concerned. We can't change that. No. We can only do what we do. We can only present what you know, the truth as we see it. Yeah, and for, that's, for, and that's for us. That's yeah. why plays like, you know, Arthur Miller's plays, Shakespeare's plays, they're openly, they're endlessly open to interpretation yeah. because each actor brings yeah. what they want to it, different yeah. things to yeah. it. And that's the great thing about those plays. Can right. I ask you about having, you talk about a champion, that, the director being a champion. Um how do they champion you? Do they allow you to give your own interpretation? Are they guiding you? They're seeing you, aren't they? They're not the worst directors for me are the directors who I feel they wanted to cast someone else and they're trying to get me to do <laughs> to be more like that actor that they, they didn't get. But what does a champion director do for you? I think they do two things. I think First of all, they see something in you that no one else has seen. Mm. And then I think when you work with them, they watch. They watch and they work with what they see. You know, not they're great at looking. Mm. They're great at looking. I'm talking purely from an actor's point of view now. And that is 
liberating because it's a different conversation you have with them because you're talking about something that is there, not something that is a concept. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the most freeing thing because beneath it all, which is not to say they don't direct you, they do. And it can be hard, you know, but they, they are using, it's, you know, they're like sculpting, but they're using the materials. It's, it's there. They're not wanting to import something else. But there's That's, a trust there. And then, you know, yeah. they, are the, they are a safety, you know, yeah. they'll, they'll allow you to fall. Yeah. You know, there's no such thing as failure, obviously, in that sense, because you're always yeah. discovering. But you feel that they are... They're there for you, and yeah. therefore you yeah. can go and try and try and try. They're, yeah. they're, they're the best directors for me. And what about when you're working with something like Leah? Are you an actor who likes to sit and unpack the text, and or are you someone who likes to get it on its feet and discover it in action? Um, I think with something like Leah, I think you have to look closely at the text. I think because, again, the text is freeing or it's not freeing. Mm -hmm. One can be trapped. The thing about something like Leah is you just want to take the history and say, fuck it. Yeah. That's history. That's got. Do you mean the other interpretations of that? Yeah. Yeah. People talk about a great Leah there, a great Leah. Great. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. This is what's in front of me. And I think if you go to the text properly and you respect the text, then again, it gives you a kind of freedom. You know, people talk about meter and all the rest of it. That's all fine. But if you find within that your freedom, your expression, I think you have something that is, you can have something that is illuminating. If only for yourself, when he says never, 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 you just, it means, he means it. This this is never, ever, 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 ever going to be different. You you, you just feel that his child has died and that will never, ever come again. No other child makes up for it. But what was your interpretation around the task he gives them when he splits those that kingdom into three and demands their love where's where is that coming from for that man well for you i think somebody told me a story the other day somebody i knew reasonably well who is has early onset dementia and he couldn't recognize his own children and my thing was that that was what was happening to Leah. And he wanted, he wanted a kind of proof, you know, to, 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 to refine himself. And how do, you, how do you do that? Well, it's impossible. But, you know, if you're making the attempt, it seems to me you go to an extraordinary place to find proof where no proof exists. Yeah. So that's that was the kind of premise I 
came and from. Certainly the play takes you there with, you know, he does lose his mind. And, yeah. You know, yeah. I mean, and his so, rages, those sudden rages he would have, mm. and the paranoia. And the lucidity about. he has, as opposed to it as well. It's that fight well, inside that he sort of knows it's going on. Yeah. And then yeah. doesn't have control over it. It's so heartbreaking. Yeah, it is. And I think, yeah, that's what makes it great. Yeah. You know, that's, and also, of course, the storm. Yes. <laughs> it's outside and inside. Yes. That's what's brilliant about it. He, and that leads me. That just leads me a little bit to ask you about the physicality. How do you physically, on a run when you're doing All My Sons or Leah or those big theatrical roles, do you treat yourself physically differently in the months or the weeks of playing? I think you get the stamina from the thing. I think once you get into it, it's like exercise, isn't it? It's like going to the gym. Mm. You know, you go and you, you, you build up those muscles and that's rehearsal. Right. You're building the muscles. You're building it so that there's, you're building the structure. And once you've built it, you get inside it and you push it and you pull it and you, you do this and that. Mm. I don't, maybe now, I haven't been on stage for four years, I think. Maybe now I would, I would think that I need, I need to look after myself. But I think as actors, we have an instinct that says, look, it's time to go home now. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think in the main, we have that. I mean, obviously, there, are, there was a fashion for very self-destructive actors, which was also for them part of the creative process. I don't think we do that much anymore. Yeah, and also that was all to do with this bollocks about authenticity that, you know, yeah. which I, I certainly was a... I bought into as a younger actor that, you know, I had to be over here and doing this madness in order to get this. And now I think, well, you know, this is my job. I know I love my job. I need to sort of have a responsibility. Just things like vocally, for God's sake, you know, know, I've got to look after myself if I'm doing a long run. Yeah. Yeah. I think with age, hopefully comes a bit of, um, Let's hope. No. And what no. about what about um, what about nerves for you? Do they play a part with you? Do you have anything no. about? No, you don't get nervous. No. Yeah, I, I get very nervous. Oh, you do. I get very nervous. You know, and I'm always well because it, because it's terrifying, isn't it? Before you, <laughs> before that first step, you know, it's it's you kind of think, why, what. <laughs> There are other things I could do, you know, on a Tuesday evening at 7.30. How did this happen? Yeah, I just, but once, once you get going, once you're on there, you're on there. And the struggle is to, to, I always try to be as calm as I can when I go on. It's, for me, it's, it's, it's how you begin. If you begin properly, the likelihood is you will end properly. Mm. If you don't begin properly, you struggle to find your way. Uh, and you, I think as actors, we know, we know when we are on, when we hit the rhythm. It is you rhythm, know? isn't it? It's like a piece of music. I always yeah. think that sense, particularly yeah. with classical text, yeah. you know, you don't want to be doing the finale just as you're getting into the first yeah, act. You yeah, know, I, I do think that. 
think, you know, rhythm is, is in most things, in most things, if you can find or create a rhythm, if you can make, if you can, yeah, if you find a rhythm that is, is, is that you're at home with in terms of the peace and yourself, mm. I think that's, that's a lot of the work. Also, I think in a run, particularly with Shakespeare, and I'm sure the same as with Arthur Miller, is that it can change as, oh, yeah. the, as the run goes on. And you can yeah. still constantly be surprising yourself and, and the audience with yes. the different changes that are happening to you. But, I mean, yeah, I, but that's, that's about the relaxation. Because if we relax properly, mm. we allow things to happen. Mm. In the moment that it's because of suddenly what the other act did, you know, I don't know. It's there are things that go on that that the more we relax, and I don't mean, I mean, it's, it's an odd word to use, but I mean, the more relaxed we are, the more impulses come. Yes, I think it is. And it's the more being open, isn't it? That, yeah, then the better. I mean, I th I've often found with the Shakespeare that I've done, I could read something in the news or something had come up or, you know, there might be a, something happens in my family, a, a death or something. And a line or a passage suddenly means something completely different yeah. to me on this particular yeah. yeah, And, he, and yeah. his genius comes through in that way. Absolutely, because those words say it better mm. than anything else, mm. you know. Yes. You know. It's amazing. Uh, when he says about Cordelia, no breath, I, d I just think yeah. if you've ever seen a dead body, know. you know exactly what that means. No life. It's And also just the fact that he's been in this terrible place of, of madness and he is so lucid and alive and sort of present in that moment with her. That is just so tragic in itself yeah. that there's, yeah. there's even, there's, he can't even escape this terrible moment. You mentioned critics before. What about reviews for you? How, how do you deal with that? Are there, is that part of, do you ignore them or what? Is that something you've come to terms with? I would love to tell you I ignore them. I'd love to say that, but you know, I'm as vain as the next man. I tell you, I, when I get a good review, I think, no, oh, that's really lovely for about a day. And then I think, what the fuck do they know? <laughs> you know, you can't, that's, that's part of the conundrum of being an actor. You kind of, you love it and then you hate it or you hate yourself for loving it yeah. because we know better. Deep down, we know better. We know, I always remember doing Rising Damp I, I, I had done another play on on television, and it we were going into rehearse. It was the Sulgrave Boys Club in in um, Shepherd's Bush, and there was a woman cleaning the floor, and she was putting down newspaper. And I, I looked at the newspaper she put in that she put down on the floor, and it was my review. <laughs> and we were walking on it. So you thought. There it is. There it is. That's that's it. <laughs> you know. But you know, I'd much rather read good reviews than bad ones. 
Yeah, me too. <laughs> Don, it's been wonderful to talk to you today. Honestly, it was really interesting watching it again. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. It's good to talk to an actor about acting. Who Am I This Time is a Just Voices and Dulali production. Produced by Simon Lennigan, music by Greg Hatwell. Edited and mixed by Russ Keffert at Audio Egg and presented by me, David Morrissey. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>